are listening to Stories of Scotland. And in this episode, we are heading to the bright lights of Auld Reekie. That's right, the Athens of the North, the capital of Scotland. It's the city of Edinburgh. I'm Jenny, your friendly environmental scientist. And I'm Annie, your jolly archivist. This series is kindly funded by the Royal Society of Literature and inspired by the beautiful writing in the Scottish Mountaineering Journals. And you're right, Jenny, we're heading to Edinburgh for a spectacular view. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Salisbury Crags, tall cliffs which peer over Edinburgh. Anyone who has been to Scotland's capital is likely familiar with these striking cliffs which adjoin Arthur's seat at the edge of Holyrood Park. The Salisbury Crags are the Robin to Arthur's seat's Batman. But in this episode, we'll understand why they too are just as impressive as the imposing Arthur's seat. We're going back to the year 1900. The secretary of the Scottish Mountaineering Club, William Inglis Clark, is a regular contributor to the journal. He can't stop writing about mountains. In this extract from the September volume, we learn what's cracking in these crags. Now this text is going to mention the Katnik Arret, which is the peak of a gully through the Salisbury Crags. In many mountains, even the easiest route is difficult, nay, even dangerous, and practice on the Salisbury Crags, apart altogether from the enjoyment derived therefor, is regarded as valuable preparation for the most uniformly difficult work abroad. The crag climbs are similar to the more difficult alpine rock climbs. In these days, one hears a good deal about the rights and grievances of women, The difficulties in the way of women climbing in the Queen's Park must be added to these. On no balmy summer afternoon or evening, and not while the forenoon sun has restrained his inquisitive eye from the recesses of the catnick, can the fair sex rollick on the ridges on some wet and misty day when the easterly har drives along and damps even the ardour of the sterner sex. When it shrouds the rock in mist, then only can the ladies overcome the difficulties of foot and hand and balance without fear of drawing a crowd or in the early morn. When sober members of the Scottish Mountaineering Club yawn and turn again in bed, then this is the time for dotty deeds on crag and in chimney. So it befell that one afternoon last summer, a wife of a member of the Mountaineering Club attempted the cat Nick erect. She had reached the prominent block in safety when, lo, from St. Leonard's Hill, some observing youngster espied her light blouse. Ere a minute had passed, the news had sped, and soon a crowd of excited urchins raced down the hill, across the path, and up the steep talus slope to the crags. From the vantage point of view of the rocks, they seemed like a swarm of ants. And ere the foremost had reached the radical road, hundreds, hundreds of children were congregated at St. Leonard's to view the unwanted spectacle. An embarrassing flight alone was possible, the ascent was abandoned. And ere 
more than a score of the spectators had taken up positions in the cat nick itself. Our party had disappeared over the top of the gully and we were en route for home. It's quite easy to get lost in the Victorian language here, so let's just find our feet on this rocky ground. Inglis Clark is telling us about women who really want to climb the Salisbury crags, but they have been forced to do it in either the very early hours of the morning or in the bad weather. He describes an incident when the women are trying to climb in the daytime in good weather and they get so many unwanted onlookers that they have to abandon their climb. Nevertheless, our climbers persevere and so they move their activity to these early morning climbs. And then they'll also go out when Arthur's seat is cloaked in mist and they can remain anonymous. We'll come back to these women and their inspirational endurance later. But for now, why don't we learn more about the Salisbury Crags and how they came to be? Yes, well, in William's writing, we see that the cliffs were common climbing training grounds, with many of those on the rocks applying their training at Salisbury to their alpine climbing, which was considered... Are you ready for this, Annie? I'm ready, Jenny. It was considered the pinnacle of all climbing. Oh, Jenny, you peaked too soon. (laughs) It's all a slippery slope from here, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) And down we go, Jenny. So yes, the Salisbury Crags were viewed as almost unclimbable until the mid-1800s. But with the development of alpine climbing techniques and equipment... Many routes were found up the crags, and, as we just heard, both women and men enjoyed climbing the rock face. But Jenny, please tell me about this face of rock. Tell me about its smiles and its frowns, its laughter and its cries. How did this rock face end up looking down upon the city of Edinburgh? Well, the mighty face of the Salisbury crags are a spur of Arthur's seat extending down towards Holyrood Park, a stone's throw from the Scottish government buildings. Arthur's seat is the remnants of a long extinct 340 million year old volcano, so it's made up of really nice hard igneous rocks. Now after the volcano was formed at some point an ocean covered the area and over millions of years sandstone accumulated around the volcano but During the last ice age, it was carved from these surrounding rocks by glaciers. And once the glaciers retreated, like they always do, the cowards, the resilient rock of Arthur's seat remained and once more stood proud above the sandstones below. And now it towers 250 metres above Edinburgh, a mountain in a city. How strange. Well, Jenny, the only thing stranger than this is how I asked you about the Salisbury Crags, but you've told me all about the glorious extinct volcano that is Arthur's Seat. Huh, that is weird, Annie. But, uh, oh no, you know I have a soft spot for hard rocks. Ugh, you big softy. So, (laughs) are the crags on your list, or are you just going to regale me with the entire history of geology as a science? Ah, actually funny you should say that, Annie, because the Salisbury Crags have a vital part to play in modern geology as we know it. 
Oh well, if I'm at the station, I might as well get on this train. Woohoo! All aboard the Geology Express. It's painfully slow and the food tastes like sand. Choo-choo! <laughs> the Salisbury Crags, while igneous rock, are not the same type of igneous rock as Arthur's Seat. They're the edgy kids on the block of rock. Because, you see, these crags are the edge of a sill. And a sill is a geological formation that is created when molten hot rock squeezes between layers of solid rock and solidifies, like a big flat windowsill. So how does this sill tie into the history of geology as we know it? Because of my boy James Hutton, the granddaddy of modern geology. He was born in Edinburgh in the mid-1700s, and would wander at the feet of the crags and upon Arthur's seat while pondering the mysteries of rock, something I too enjoy doing on cool spring evenings. Through close examination and applying logic, he devised that the towering crags were younger than the sandstone around them, and had once been molten magma injected into these sandstone layers long after the layers had been formed. Now, this was a huge thought for the time, and James built a huge theory around it. Using the igneous Salisbury crags and similar intrusions in the Cairngorms as evidence, he was able to displace the prevailing theory of the time that all rocks had been formed at one time in a mysterious primordial sea filled with sharks and tourists on lilos. So the bit with the tourists, I think, is a bit of an embellishment from you. <laughs> but is it actually true that at one point scientists thought that all rocks were being made in a mysterious primordial sea? And, and were, were there sharks? Well, yes, to your first question and your second. But with the first question, when it comes to this primordial sea, it was the theory at the time that Earth had once been a big giant ball of water with all the sand and sediment sort of suspended in it. And over time, the gravity of the centre of this ball of water pulled all the sediments in. And as it did that, it solidified, and we ended up with a hard earth with ocean on top. Now, then they are faced with the things like the fossils of ancient sharks, and they have to sort of work this into their theory, but it doesn't match, and there's something wrong with it. And James Hutton is looking at this prevailing theory and thinking, this jigsaw, we're just jamming pieces in, hoping that they fit. When actually, when he was looking at the Salisbury crags, it's like he found the golden piece and was able to wipe away the entire previous theory and start the jigsaw again. Wow, and, and that's how we know that rocks are made all at different times, because Hutton could prove that the crags themselves were younger than the sandstone. So he's proving that geology is dynamic. Yes, exactly. And to cut a 4.3 billion year long story short, he proved that the earth was in perpetual motion, that rock was not static and unchangeable, but constantly evolving. His realisation at the foot of the Salisbury Crags was the spark that kick-started the geologic revolution, and one of the many puzzle pieces that Hutton was able to slot into place over his long and distinguished career. are various theories about how Arthur's Seat 
got its name. But the prevailing one is that this was where King Arthur of the Arthurian legends had his 6th century fort, Camelot. So this was the location of his fort, and in that fort was his throne, and on that throne the king sat. So, Arthur's seat. Instead of a symbolic seat, a lot of people like to think of the whole hill as being literally his seat. So, this feeds into the world of Gaelic mythology, where giant kings are spread throughout Scotland and Ireland. And what does a giant king need but a giant throne? (laughs) So he just plonks down right on top of Arthur's seat, his lovely giant throne, and then he can look over Edinburgh. Do you think that makes the Salisbury Crags his (laughs) footrest? Yes, the Salisbury couch. So... (laughs) There's another variation of this mythology that the giant King Arthur is currently soundly sleeping under a blanket of rock. He is awaiting for the call of his country in need, where he can rise with his great sword and save us from whatever perils we are in. So this makes Arthur's seat the ultimate weighted blanket. You'll sleep for centuries. Like a rock. (laughs) (laughs) But I just love this version of the story. Just imagine a giant King Arthur bursting from underneath the rock blanket and roaring throughout Old Ricky. Yes, but can you imagine how unimpressed the Edinburgh Fringe would be? The reviewers would probably only give him three stars. Hmm, yes, great visuals, but the costumes were a bit ratty and old, and instead of jokes, he just kept yelling about saving the country, all while completely missing the mark on the current socio-economic climate. He'd do a lot better if he focused on using that sword to cut fuel prices rather than dragon slaying. And speaking of dragons, the whole show tended to drag on a bit. (laughs) Well, I thought it was a roaring success. Well, while this story sword is still sharp, shall we meet a climber on the Salisbury Crags, Jenny? Let's set this story on fire. Dragony fire. A note on Scots, a heart is a sea fog. Ah, the tales of dragons are dim by now, merely a stump of candlelight. But the stories of fairies on Arthur's seat, well, they blaze. We used to run down the slopes of the crags first thing, just after sunrise on May Day. We would wash our faces with the fairy water, the morning dew of the fresh grass. My mother said it would make us beautiful, but I don't think the fairies give us beauty for our faces every May morning. I think it's more a perspective, a way of seeing beauty in the world around us, a magic. Because, oh, we always had such a good time. I'll have to take the girls down there this year, get Mother out as well if we can. She'd love that. She loves telling the girls stories of the fairies dancing in the hill. You know, now I think about it, That's probably why the crags have always seemed so otherworldly to me. So out of place in the middle of this city, and yet 
Their presence is exciting, and never more so than the first morning I went up there. The first morning climbing with Jane, that is. You see, Harry, uh, my husband, had been in the mountaineering club for a few months, and we were invited to a small luncheon in the new saloon of the Edinburgh Cafe on Princess Street. While a lovely meeting spot, I was feeling quite out of my own there. I knew nothing of the sorts of mountaineering these men partook in and talked of. Well, you can imagine how shocked I was to learn that it is not just the husbands that talk of this, but their wives too. <laughs> my, I laugh now, but oh, the horror I had to hide from my face. <laughs> and uh, not so successfully, I presume, as Jane, another of the wives, well, she reached over and she took my hands. She turned them over in her own, looked up with a smile, and announced that I had wonderful, strong hands, perfect for climbing. <laughs> she insisted that I meet her, rain or shine, on the coming Wednesday morn in Queen's Park. Me? I couldn't pull myself up a pebble, let alone a cliff face. But Jane was having none of it, and with everyone watching the exchange, well, I couldn't very well say no, could I? When the morning came, it was neither rain or shine, for the har was upon the city, one of the thickest mists in a long time. I almost didn't go, but was won over by the thought that if they weren't there, then I need not bother with any climbing. It would be a lovely, calming walk before the girls awoke. When I reached the open expanse of the park, I could barely see the low slopes. But it was the strangest thing. I could hear a voice calling through the mist. It was as if there were fairies hiding behind the clouds. I couldn't help but be drawn in. Following the faint fairy calls and hurrying up the hill, I felt as though I had passed into another world. As I climbed, the voice became clearer, strong and commanding, leading me through the mist. My heart was racing, half from the climb and half from the eerie adrenaline of this unknown world I had blindly stumbled into. After a time, I saw the silhouette of a woman shining through the mist, she was looking up at the crags, through the clouds, shouting to someone high above. I stood and watched Jane unnoticed until her companion had reached the top. Rather, her daughter Mabel, upon her return to ground level, I made my presence known, and oh how they laughed at my shock of seeing them in their knickerbockers! Mabel leaped about in them to show how freeing they were. And at first, oh, I won't lie to you, I wasn't very good. My arms turned to rubber after just ten minutes, but Jane said I was a natural. I watched as she moved up the rock like something out of a myth, and on our walk down to the city, they invited me back to climb with them again. They even pointed out the fairy circles to me afterwards. And that was me off. In the chilly spring mornings, rain, shine or fog, 
We'd warm our bodies climbing the rocks. We carried on through the summer, getting up earlier still, making the most of the quiet early morning light. I'll never forget the morning I made it to the top for the first time. Oh, what a feeling! As we were making our way up the slopes, Jane said she thought I could do the catnip route. And you know, I thought I could too. And so, with my back to the city and my face to the rock, I worked my way up with my friends below. It wasn't the prettiest climbing and my arms burned as I pulled myself up over the top ledge. Oh, but when my legs took the strain from my arms, I turned and looked at what I'd climbed. The night's rain clouds were well on their way out to sea, and the whole city opened up below me. Standing there, I could see beyond the streets paved with the same rock that I had just conquered, over the water beyond the forth, and out there, in the far distance, I saw mountains. And in that moment, each one of them became a new challenge. We have since sat atop Stakashoren and Ben Vorlich. From the top of each, a new challenge arises. Ben Leddy is next. But it hasn't been easy. There comes a toll from climbing in the margins of the day. Too often I have lost footing as tiredness takes over or been so weighted down by the heavy, sodden garments that climbing seems impossible. Tired of this compromise, one fair afternoon we thought we should try a daytime jaunt up the crags with our husbands, only, well, you heard how that debacle ended. We returned to the edges of the day, to the outskirts, but we did not despair, for we know that one day we will move from the shadows of the morning to the midday light, and be celebrated for our strength and our skill rather than the cuts of our climbing skirts. Skirts hemmed with leather, tough and resilient leather. The furthest edge is the strongest part. While our lovely tale has ended, this was just the beginning of the Ladies Scottish Climbing Club. Yes, the women who climb the crags in Edinburgh are more than just a side note in a mountain journal entry. These women were experienced climbers and had a long-lasting impact on the climbing and mountaineering world for women in Scotland. The mother of the climbing duo mentioned, Jane, is based on a real person, Jane Inglis Clark. And if you remember that the Mountain Journal piece was written by the then secretary of the club, William Inglis Clark, he's her husband. Jane and William married in 1884 and their shared love of hill walking was a cornerstone of their relationship. Jane began rock climbing with William in 1897, when she was 37 years old. She was an excellent and accomplished climber, and would often take part in expeditions with her husband and his Scottish mountaineering club, Chums. Jane was also a key part for the first ascents of six new routes up Ben Nevis, 
So she was literally finding new paths. And by 1900, Jane and a small group of women were consistently claiming the crags, but they were having to sacrifice and compromise for their love of climbing. These women were climbing in the margins of the day, in the early morning hours, following their passion despite the societal expectations of the time, and carving out their own sense of belonging with the boulders. I just, I love this. It's like, yes, we see you and your obstacles, and we've added them to the list of things we're going to claim and conquer. And this leads to these women forming the Ladies' Scottish Climbing Club. In 1908, while sheltering from weather behind a huge boulder at Lixt Hall, in the very centre of Scotland, Jane, Mabel and their friend Lucy Smith decided it was time to start the Ladies' Scottish Climbing Club, a club for women to climb in all seasons. Jane Inglis Clark led a trailblazing group of women into the mountains. In doing so, she challenged the cultural limits of what it was to be a woman in the early 20th century. However, we have to remember that on its inception, this club is called the Ladies' Scottish Climbing Club, not the Women's Climbing Club. And this is an important distinction to make. Jane and her mountaineering friends were all very middle class, and Lady is a marker of this. Lady indicates a level of status and wealth. So you've maybe got the lady of the house and then you've got her staff, who would be a cook and a housekeeper. All three are women, but only one is addressed as a lady and she's the most powerful. However, this class divide was also present in the male equivalent of the climbing clubs and it's something that I think they realise quite quickly is a problem. Yes, because there's a lot happening at the start of the 20th century. The suffragette movement, the fight for women's right to vote, was really boiling at the same time that the club was opened up. The First World War gave opportunities for women to work in what had been previously exclusively male roles, whilst men were called up to join the military effort. Women were breaking the boundaries that society had set for them, And with the Ladies' Scottish Climbing Club, it was just another example of this. Women seeking adventures in outdoor pursuits. Jane was one for inclusivity and believed the club should be open to all women, regardless of class. At the end of the First World War, the club was opened to working women as well as middle-class ladies. Though, because middle-class ladies are the ones with the leisure, time and the resources to be able to go climbing. I'm not sure how long it took to really expand the membership and if this was even that effective. Jane Inglis Clark wanted as many women as possible to experience the mountains. And in her book called Pictures and Memories, she talks of her beliefs in women's potential in the mountains and their right to self-fulfillment. I think that modern walking groups have taken over the mantle of inclusivity in walking nowadays, such as the Scottish Women's Walking Group and Black Girls Hike. Jane is quoted as saying, There is no sport like mountaineering. It is the overcoming of difficulties, the mental climbing as well as the physical, 
that give it such zest. The troubles of life seem to fade away in the presence of the everlasting hills. We may go out tired and worn in mind and body. We return renewed and restored, health re-established and friendships strengthened. And for me, that's the most powerful thing about going into the mountains, that even once I've left them, they stay with me. I feel like a new person and I can conquer anything in my daily life. I, you don't have to go on a mountaineering expedition in a leather-hemmed skirt to benefit from the mountains. A day trip for a wander round a loch can give so much. The power we gain from the mountains translates into other parts of our lives. The confidence you gain in yourself and the trust that you can build in yourself, they serve to strip back the facade of what society expects of us and allows us to become empowered and strong in a way that I didn't know was possible before I started hiking. Arthur's Seat and the Salisbury Crags serve as a reminder that we are never too far from the majesty of nature and we're always able to harness its power, be it because there's a giant sleeping underneath or be it because we can wander up with a flask of tea. Alright, what a fun journey up the crags it has been this week. Shall we head down the slopes now and into the city for some afternoon tea? Oh, yes, please. I'll have extra of the dainty little cakes. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for listening and supporting us as we come out of the mountains and the archives to make this podcast. You can support us by following us on all the social medias and sharing us with your friends and family. And enemies. Yes, them too. Who knows, maybe our love of mountains will help cure their hostility towards you. A sneaky wee share goes a long way in podcasting, and so does a review. If you leave us a review, it genuinely makes our day and reminds us that there are people on the other end of all of this hard work, listening to this weird show, and that makes it so worthwhile. We've had some... Oh, we've had some of the kindest reviews in the past couple of weeks that have just been incredibly flattering and incredibly inflating of our egos (laughs) and has made us speed up a little bit. So thank you so much. You can also support us on Patreon and help me buy lots of little cakes for our tea. Head over to www.patreon.com slash stories of Scotland to join up. And for the price of a cream scone a month, you can support us as we write. A massive thank you to our newest Patreons, George, Shannon, Scott, Honey and Wool, Danny, Corey, James and Larissa. Thank you all so much, you absolutely wonderful people. I like to imagine that you're all on top of Arthur's seat in the beautiful medieval fort of Camelot and you're the knights of King Arthur's round table. And you're explaining to Arthur that instead of slaying the dragon, you're going to bring a really big barrel of cheese round to the dragon and get him to toast it for you so you can have a delicious fondue and (laughs) share it with the dragon. And then you'll get out your sourdough bread, the dragon will toast that, and you'll have lovely toasted sourdough to just dunk in your fondue. 
<laughs> It'll be delicious, and Camelot will prosper, and the dragon will stop stealing people's sheep and children to eat, because the dragon will be so full of fondue that the dragon won't want to waste time with, with any of that uncooked mutton. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening and joining us round this giant fondue of ancient stories. Slangeva. Slangeva. volcano isn't it Jenny I don't need to panic about this volcano puffing up do I no not at all but I can see it being handy if you're on top and it blows you'll end up in London faster than the train will take you (laughs) why would you want to go to London Jenny true you're in the Athens of the north what more do you want do you think we could arrange (laughs) for it to take me up to Inverness instead that's where I want to be that's true to more mountains It's incredible, but can you just imagine a shark right at the core of the centre of the earth? Doing puzzles. (laughs) (laughs) I've lost a piece now. (laughs) We shouldn't make jokes about this because next there'll be a conspiracy theory about how the earth used to be completely water. It's either that or the earth is filled with sharks. Um, It's probably more likely that the earth is filled with sharks. No, neither of those are true. Raucous dynamic. And there were tourists on Lilo's 340 million years ago. <laughs> Let's set this story on fire. Dragony fire. <sighs> oh. That was, yeah, that was a dragon. But like without the fire noise, I don't know how you do that. I'm not there yet with my dragging impression. Jenny made a dragon face. And it didn't look very dragony at all. <laughs> what do you want me to do? Grow spikes in a snout? <laughs> <laughs> you weren't even close to a lizard, Jenny. Do you know this one time we were on a I was on a bus with a bunch of people and we were doing that thing where you're like, Oh, what animal do I look like? And what animal do I look like? And I was like, Oh, you look like a polar bear and oh, you look like a I don't know, a dove. <laughs> someone someone I go, Oh, what do I look like? And someone turned and went, Mmm, you look like a newt. <laughs> And I like I couldn't even argue because I was like, oh, oh man, I do look like a newt. <laughs> yeah, your head is just shaped a bit like a newt's head. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I it's mean, just, it's not it is... full Lord Voldemort, but it's a good fifteen <laughs> percent of the way there. <laughs> yeah, I've still got too much nose, but it is a very squishy nose, so I can basically. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Jenny, stop doing that! Stop doing that! <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay. He's her husband. Yeah. In- he and Jay. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I don't know why that's celebratory. I am Miss Jean Brodie, and I am in my prime. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Jean, and I am in my prime. <laughs> and I, and I am in my prime. We should try a daytime jaunt. I've lost her. I've lost her. I'm in my prime. I'm McGonagall. I miss Jean Brody. And I am in my prime. <sighs> I've never seen the prime of Miss Jean Brody, but you, Jenny, are in your prime. <laughs> <laughs>